As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. Prodigy is a production of iHeartRadio. Since today is Christmas Eve, I decided to do something a little different. The first episode of this podcast was about female chess prodigies which happened to coincide with a show on Netflix called The Queen's Gambit. It quickly became Netflix's most watched series ever and reignited America's interest in the game. Sales of chess sets have increased up to tenfold and chess.com has seen millions of new users. The first part of this episode will explain The Queen's Gambit opening strategy, a couple defenses to it, and a person the show frequently references, Paul Morphy. For the second part, I spoke with a marketing professor at Carnegie Mellon University who has done some really interesting research on the psychology of gift giving. My name is Lowell Brillanti, and this is Prodigy. Because of the first episode on the Polgar sisters, people often ask me if I'm really into chess. I actually haven't played the game since I was a kid, but after all the research for that episode, I've developed a keen interest in it. If you want to get a better understanding of chess, there's a YouTube channel that breaks down Grandmaster games. It's really interesting and teaches you a ton. I'll link it in the sources on the episode page at prodigypodcast.com. If you're curious why the Queen's Gambit has no mention of the Polgar sisters, it's because the show is based on a fictional book published in 1983. At the time of the publication, Susan was just 14 years old and Judith was seven so it's quite possible the author wasn't aware of them, even though just a year later, Susan became the first female grandmaster. Susan praised the show's accurate depiction of chess as real and exciting, but pointed out that it ignored the prevalent sexism that existed at the time. Susan said, quote, Even today, as of 2020, there is clear sexism in the chess world. The author's actual inspiration for the character came mostly from Bobby Fischer, and you can see a lot of parallels between his career and Beth Harmon's. There's three parts to a game of chess. The opening, mid-game, and end-game. In the opening, white moves, or attacks, first, which provides a small advantage. Since black moves second, it's often called a defense. The Queen's Gambit is one of many different opening strategies. There are dozens more and hundreds of variants. In chess, Pawns initially seem like weak pieces, but they are critical for establishing control over the center of the board. They're also pretty unique compared to the others. 
They can move two spaces the first time they move. They can't move backwards, and they can only take diagonally, which is a different direction than they move. Pawns are referred to based on what piece they start in front of. A pawn in front of the queen is called the queen's pawn. Pieces in the back row are named for which side they're on, either the king's side or the queen's side. So the opening is called the queen's gambit because the first move is made by the pawn directly in front of the queen. A gambit is a move in which a player sacrifices a piece to gain a positional advantage. This gambit is considered an aggressive opening because at a high level, being down a single pawn is a significant disadvantage. And here's how the queen's gambit is played. I'll post a video of it on the episode webpage. When the game begins, white moves the queen's pawn up two spaces. Since white moves first, black is already at a disadvantage and is fighting to equalize control of the board. If black moves their pawn to the left or the right of the white's pawn, it can be taken diagonally. So often, black's response is to mirror the move. Now both sides' pawns are facing each other in the center of the board, and it's white's move. White moves their bishop's pawn up next to their queen pawn. So now white has two pawns side by side facing one black pawn. This offers black the ability to take that pawn. Offering this piece as a sacrifice is why it's a gambit. If black takes the piece, the gambit is considered accepted. If not, it's declined. So if black accepts the gambit and takes white's pawn, white is now down a pawn, but their next move is to promote their king's pawn. Now white controls two center squares and black controls one. This is the basic strategy behind the queen's gambit. You're trading a pawn for positional advantage. Also, black's pawn is exposed to white's bishop. So if black doesn't move to protect that pawn, they will lose it, and white will completely control the center of the board. One counter strategy is the Slav defense. In this defense, instead of black accepting the gambit and taking white's pawn, they move an adjacent pawn up one to protect their queen's pawn. It's a good defense and minimizes white's advantage. Another counter strategy mentioned in the Queen's Gambit show is the Indian defense. After white opens by moving their queen's pawn, instead of mirroring the move, black moves their knight. This concedes control of the center, but sets up a strong, albeit passive, defense. One last subject mentioned several times in the Queen's Gambit is Paul Morphy. He was an American chess prodigy, born in 1837. Bobby Fischer ranked him in the top 10 of all time, and Kasparov called him the forefather of modern chess. At nine years old, he was considered the best player in New Orleans. The commanding general of the United States, General Winfield Scott, was visiting at the time and wanted to play the best local talent. General Scott was a military strategist and considered himself quite good at the game, so he was insulted when they brought in nine-year-old Paul Morphy but was quickly humbled when Morphy beat him twice, the second time in only six moves. When Morphy was 12, the city was visited by a Hungarian master. He frequently defeated young talent, but considered this match a waste of his time. After just a few moves, he realized the error of his judgment and ended up losing two games and drawing one. Morphy went on to become the second world chess champion
So I really enjoyed the show and appreciate the effort they put into creating realistic chess situations. They used former world chess champion Gary Kasparov and legendary coach Bruce Pandolfini as consultants. Aside from the failure to accurately depict sexism, the main aspect that I personally thought was unrealistic was the use of tranquilizers because of the serious negative effect they have on short and long-term memory. But overall, I thought it was a great show and definitely recommend it. All right, let's switch topics to consumer psychology. I came across Dr. Jeff Gallick's AMA one day while browsing Reddit. AMA stands for Ask Me Anything, and he was answering questions about his research into the psychology of gift giving. I figured this would be an interesting holiday subject, so let's jump in. Dr. Jeff Gallick received his PhD from NYU in consumer behavior and is a professor of marketing at Carnegie Mellon University. He studies decision-making, and how products and experiences affect an individual's happiness. What I do is I conduct behavioral experiments uh, on humans. Uh, usually these are in the form of surveys or in the form of behavioral experiments, where then I publish those results in an academic journal with the hope then of having firms use that uh, as they see fit. Although quite frankly, most of my work is targeted towards consumers much more than firms. Dr. Gallick and one of his postdoctoral students became interested in the psychology of gift giving and the questions surrounding it. What makes for a good gift? Uh, what errors do gift givers make when they actually give gifts? Uh, are they well-intentioned or are they more selfishly intentioned when they give gifts? It's a really big question because gifts not only are a huge part of our economy. So if you think about it, billions and billions of dollars are spent every single year just on Christmas gifts, for example. Um, and that's obviously important to firms. It's important to our society at large, but it's also really important to individuals. When I give a gift to a significant other or a friend, uh, it's a signal in some ways of how much I care about that person. It's a way to form relationships and create close ties. And we might not be doing as good a job as we think we are. So a lot of this research is looking at how do we help people? And to help them, we first have to understand what their failings are. I would say the most common mistake that people make or the most common misconception is that to give a good gift, you have to give an expensive gift. That belief is pervasive. Everyone thinks that if you spend more money, you're gonna make the recipient happier. And there is virtually no evidence supporting that claim at all. Quite to the contrary. There's a lot of evidence suggesting that what gift recipients care about is the intentionality of the giver and the thoughtfulness of the giver, and not at all about the quality of the gift itself. So when you hear the popular phrase, it's the thought that counts, turns out that's actually well supported by research. And yet, when you actually look at what givers tend to gift and what their beliefs are, they don't think that at all. Which is a little weird, right? Because we as individuals are both givers and recipients, right? We give gifts and we get them. When we put the hat on of being a recipient, it's like it flips a switch and we have a totally different psychology, right? As a recipient, I say to myself, oh, is this gift that I just got from this other person a sign of thoughtfulness? And in almost all cases it is, right? It takes a lot to give a genuinely bad gift. That's, that's a rare event. But the moment I take that hat off, and now I act as the giver, I forget that experience that I had just a moment ago as a recipient. And instead I say, oh, well, they're not going to value me as a friend if I don't spend X dollars, you know, some beyond some threshold. And that's just not true, right? You yourself experience it completely differently when you have the recipient hat on. But when you put the giver hat on, it changes. So the psychology of what you think is important is not the same in those cases, which is strange. This difference in mindset an individual experiences 
on either side of the same act is called an asymmetry because it doesn't match up. The threshold for what constitutes a good gift is actually pretty low. Sometimes writing a card is sufficient as a gift. Um, sometimes a small gift card is sufficient as a gift, um, a small purchase. Handmade items are, are generally very well received. Uh, we have a whole other body of work looking at uh, sentimentally valuable gifts. So these are gifts that maybe are not valuable from a monetary perspective, right? You couldn't resell them for anything, but they might signify something really important about the relationship that you have with that person. Those gifts are way better received by recipients than comparably uh, expensive, non-sentimentally valuable gifts. The thoughtfulness dimension is universal. So as long as you as a gift giver are engaging in the gift giving act and giving that gift, you've pretty much met the minimum requirement necessary for the recipient to like it, with few exceptions. Again, you can give bad gifts. We can think of examples of them, but those are so unusual that they're not even worth studying most of the time. All right, we're going to get into some more mistakes people make and ways to avoid them right after this quick break. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you <laughs> in the forehead. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yimby's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Oh. Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Welcome back to Prodigy. If you live in Georgia, here's a quick reminder to vote. All right, back to the show. So the data shows that the cost of an item is not equivalent to its value as a gift. Another common error givers make is thinking that fun items are more well-received than useful items. So giving you something like fun and frivolous and flashy, everybody thinks that'll be a great gift. But no, it turns out the utilitarian, the useful gifts, are often the best ones that you can give if you start playing in that hierarchy of these are gifts that are already above the bar. They're already going to be well-received by recipients. They're already going to think that you're a thoughtful gift giver, regardless of whether it's fun or utilitarian. But it turns out you do have more errors of the kind where recipients do value utilitarian gifts more than they value we call them hedonic gifts, so gifts that are just primarily for pleasure or enjoyment. So another error that often people make um, is that they believe that gifts that are surprising are somehow particularly good. And that's just not true, right? So the reason somebody makes a wish list, or for example, I think the most common one is a wedding registry, right? So a couple is getting married, they make their list of items that they would like to receive as gifts. That's a very common example of a wish list. What happens is that gift givers think that the only way they can prove their thoughtfulness is by going outside of the registry and getting something unique and special. But that completely ignores the fact that the reason that those items are on the registry is because the recipients, they want those items, right? They're not arbitrarily placing things on their wedding registry. Um, and so there's this mismatch. Givers think that to really impress a recipient, they have to be surprising, but that's wrong. Giving gifts is hard, right? Trying to be a thoughtful gift giver shouldn't be hard, 
But it is because we have all these misconceptions about what it takes to be a good gift giver. So we spend all this time finding the right gift for all of our loved ones, for all of our friends. And that stinks, right? Like that's that's a cost that's incurred by a lot of people. Um, so having a wish list obviates that need. Second, if somebody has a wish list, well, there's no risk of giving them something that they're not going to like because they've told you explicitly what it is they want. The caveat with all that is that people are still reluctant to do it. So in my like perfect utopian gift giving world is something like you tell your friend, some other third party friend, all the items that you want. And then that third party friend goes to all of your primary friends and says, hey, here's the items that Lola wants. Like, here are the things. So that when you get that gift, it still feels like a surprise to you when you receive it, because, you know, how did I know that that's what you wanted? But I don't have this risk of actually um, getting something wrong. That's a hard world to live in. Uh, but if there's a way for me to magically go into your brain and extract what you want, that is exactly what I should be giving. So if we can all get past this silly taboo of I shouldn't ask you what you want or you shouldn't tell me what you want, that's another weird cultural taboo that exists, we'd be much better off, right? Gift givers would spend less time trying to figure out what to give and gift recipients would always be getting what they actually want. So one of my favorite new lines of research that we're working on is obligatory versus non-obligatory gifts. So obligatory gifts are gifts for things where you have an obligation. You go to a birthday party where gifts are going to be given, you have an obligation to give a gift. You go to a wedding, you have an obligation to give a gift. Non-obligatory gifts are what I like to call my Tuesday gifts. Like it's a random Tuesday and you decide to give a small token gift to a friend just because. Um, and what we want to look at is a comparison between those two in terms of how well they're received. And the overwhelming finding is that when it's an obligatory context, people are somewhat sensitive to gift quality. So if you give, let's just think of a silly example, like a $100 gift card versus a $50 gift card, people can sense the difference between those two. Like 100 is better than 50. But if it's a non-obligatory context, if it's a random Tuesday, people are just glad to get something because they had no expectations whatsoever. And what you find is that you can create much more happiness with a much lower quality and lower value gift on a random Tuesday than you can on a birthday. In one study, we looked at gift cards in particular, where it was like a $5 versus a $50 gift card. And on a random Tuesday, $5 and $50 looks exactly the same to the recipient. But that's not quite true on a birthday or anniversary where they like that they're getting something, but they certainly value $50 more than five. And the conclusion that you could draw from that, maybe it's a bit of a leap, is that you can buy 10 $5 gift cards, hand them out to your friend on 10 random Tuesdays and make them happy 10 times, just as much as you could if you spent $50 once on their birthday. So we do need to meet this social obligation because it strengthens our relationships, but you're much better off in terms of how much money you spend versus how much happiness you're generating by giving gifts on a random day. The biggest advice I can give is people need to get over this weird taboo that you can't ask people what they want. Everyone needs to get over that. The people giving gifts, the people receiving gifts, especially now, right? If somebody's going to spend money in a time when it's financially difficult to do so, and again, that's going to be true for a lot of families this year, at least make that money well spent, right? At least get somebody something that they actually want. But really the best way to do that is to ask them directly what it is they're looking for. There's this belief that that takes the mystery out of gift giving and the suspense and the surprise element, and it does take those things away. But what research overwhelmingly shows is that those things don't actually matter. Those are just things that people think are gonna affect happiness and enjoyment of a gift, but there's really no evidence suggesting that they do. 
I asked Dr. Gallick how his family is celebrating the holidays this year. This audio may sound a little different because we talked on two separate occasions. My family is a mixed family, so I am Jewish. My wife is, for all intents and purposes, nothing, though her family was raised Christian. Um, and so in our house, for what it's worth, we have a beautifully decorated Christmas tree as well as a menorah in our window. Um, so we kind of try to dabble in all parts of the holidays, uh, picking the parts that we find the most enjoyable. Oh, I think I remember that as a kid, you guys were like unicorn parents, right? Because you, you got presents at both Hanukkah and Christmas. Well, so our children, the deal we made was that they get one gift for the holiday season, period. My parents would love to give their grandchildren a present every day of the calendar year. And we've had to nip that one in the bud, lest we wind up with incredibly spoiled children. <laughs> uh, not to throw my parents under the bus too much, but they love their grandchildren and they want to shower them with presents, which I don't think is an unusual thing for grandparents to do. Um, and we really did get to the point where there was just this glut of gifts. And what wound up actually happening is our kids initially associated the grandparents with gifts. It would be like, hey, grandma's coming to visit. And the response wasn't fantastic, I get to see grandma. It was, great, what's she bringing me? And we thought that that was not an okay response. So we really had to set expectations both from the kids and quite frankly, much more for the grandparents about what was an acceptable number of gifts. And we kind of laid out the reason for that. You should love someone and want to be with someone, not because they're buying you stuff. I know this episode will probably be out too late to affect this year's Christmas gift giving, but I asked Dr. Gallick what a good gift might be considering the present circumstances. This isn't based on research, just kind of guessing a little bit. You know, buying somebody a gift certificate to a local restaurant might be really impactful because, first of all, that's a meal for them. That's that's nice. Like, that's a good gift. And also, it is helping restaurants, which are suffering dramatically right now with closures all over the country and all over the world. So you're, you're helping out that local business at the same time as giving something really fun and wonderful. Right? If somebody gave me a gift card to my favorite restaurant, that's a great gift. Dr. Gallick has a YouTube channel called Data demystified, which does a really good job at breaking down complex subjects. This is a channel that I started a few months ago uh, because I feel like there isn't a deep intuitive understanding of how to think about data and specifically statistical methods for data. Just about everything I do um, is about finding some small interesting tidbit of information that's out there in the world and then trying to explain intuitively how one should even approach thinking about those data. For instance, in a recent episode, I talked about uh, the recent Moderna vaccine. Of the 30,000 people who were actually part of the Moderna trial when they released the initial report, only 95 actually got infected across all conditions, which seems like this tiny number. Like, how can we learn anything from 95 people infected out of 30,000? And it turns out because of the way that it's split between control and treatment groups, so only five people were infected who were vaccinated and 90 people were infected who had the placebo, the likelihood of that being just a fluke, like if the vaccine was totally ineffective, is, is basically zero. I mean, it's like zero plus rounding error. The best holiday gift that we've ever gotten is the vaccine for the COVID virus. I mean, we should all be thankful and hold tight until we're able to get that and get over this horrible pandemic. So I wish everyone a safe and happy holidays and, and stick it out. Definitely check out Dr. Gallick's channel, Data Demystified, on YouTube. Next episode, we'll go into the story of possibly the most intelligent criminal alive, Ted Kaczynski, also known as the Unabomber. 
Ted's story is a unique one, which is why there have been so many retellings of it. I spoke with Agent James Fitzgerald, the FBI criminal profiler and linguistics analyst who helped catch him. Fitzgerald's involvement in the case is the subject of the show Manhunt. Another agent involved in the case criticized the writers of the show for dramatizing parts of Fitzgerald's involvement, but Fitzgerald says it's over 80% accurate. If you want to watch it, the show is currently streaming on Netflix. I also talked to a top forensic psychologist and came to a really interesting conclusion regarding Ted's diagnosis and motive. I have so many questions to answer and a ton of really interesting topics to cover. Thank you so much for listening and please subscribe to the show because I'll be back next week with another episode of Prodigy. Prodigy was created and produced by me, Lowell Berlanti. The best gift I ever got was a Nintendo, but the second best was Tyler Klang as my executive producer. You can learn more about Prodigy and find links to my socials on prodigypodcast.com. Special thanks to Taylor Malcolmus, Eddie Michael, Adriano Carreto, and you. Have a happy holiday. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council.